Hail brothers, this is Didact, and this is Didactic Mind, episode 103, No World Order. A very warm welcome to all my long-time listeners, a very warm welcome to all my long-time readers, everyone who subscribed to me on Podbean. Thank you, as always, <clears throat> for taking an hour or so out of your day to listen to me ramble on. And if you have not already done so, please make sure you like, comment, share, and especially subscribe to the podcast. That way you never miss another episode. Make sure you subscribe to the site. That way you never miss another article. And basically, uh, make sure that you keep up with things that are going on. There's so much happening right now that it's impossible for me, certainly, to stay up to date. And my article writing definitely has kind of dipped as a result of just all the madness we're seeing. But it is important to stay on top of things and it is important to analyze things as they come. And it's important to try to get a reasonably wide range of sources. You can't do that these days if you're just based in the Western world, because of course, Western governments have essentially shut down your ability to access diverse free-thinking media. If you're sitting in the West, if you're sitting in the US, the UK, or continental Europe, your ability to access anything from the other side of the new cold, of uh, the new iron curtain, is very close to zero, unless you get yourself means by which you can extract that data. Best way to do it is to get a VPN. I have a couple of links in the description box for Surfshark and Atlas VPN. Check them out. Surfshark is like the all you need, completely comprehensive solution that just delivers everything you want, unlimited devices, unlimited access, unlimited um, servers that, well, quite a lot of servers, I wouldn't say unlimited, but lots and lots of servers everywhere around the world that uh, you could possibly need <clears throat> to access information wherever it is. I mean, for example, if you want to access RT or TAS or Izvestia or Sputnik News, you can't do that in most Western countries anymore because those news outlets are blocked by firewall restrictions and information restrictions. But you can do it using a VPN by simply changing your country to somewhere that isn't in the collective West and is relatively neutral to all this insanity. The same goes with Atlas VPN, which is actually a much cheaper solution if you just need something basic. So make sure you register for that. And especially make sure you register for it because more than just information, it's about protecting yourself from government meddling, overreach, and censorship, and cancellation. I'm sure if you are, have not seen it already, go check it out. I'm sure you've seen this video of Paul Joseph Watson uh, on his site, which he has put up on his channel, rather, of a man in... Pommy Bastard Land being arrested for not even creating a meme, but forwarding a meme that offended people of the rainbow community. <clears throat> Specifically, the, the, the tomatoes and the lettuce, gay, bacon, and tomato crowd got very upset about something, some meme that said, what's a woman, something like that. And the police showed up. The British police showed up to arrest him because he caused distress to somebody. 
This tells you quite a lot about just how ridiculous Britain has gotten, how broken it is. Unfortunately, most of the West is not far behind. And if you're not using a VPN to shield your activities, then that could be you very easily. I mean, it's not a guarantee that it won't be, of course. But it's better to be protected than to post such things online without any protection whatsoever. I mean, these days, you know, surfing the web without a VPN is amazingly dangerous. It used to be if you surf the web with a VPN, that was like taking a shower while wearing a raincoat. These days, surfing the web without a VPN is like taking a shower while wearing a plugged-in toaster. So, <clears throat> given, uh, you'll have to excuse my voice, uh, some, something seems to have caught in it. And I'm not at my best at the moment for a variety of reasons. I've got some sort of lower back injury again. I don't even know what the hell I did. I was at uh, martial arts practice last week. Um, actually, the, okay, so the day before I was at this other gym which has heavy bags. My, my local gym doesn't. So <clears throat> there's a gym a little bit farther away, about 20 minutes away, which does have heavy bags, but they're the most like retarded place imaginable in terms of scheduling and, and, uh, and access to those bags. So I walk into the gym and, you know, the, the, the studio for the heavy bags is locked up. I'm like, what the hell? I mean, this wasn't on the schedule. So I go up and bitch the manager and he's like, yeah, uh, you're right. This isn't on the regular schedule. It's, it was inserted into the scheduling system. It was on our Facebook or Instagram or whatever page. And I just looked at him like, dude, you gotta be kidding, right? So he said, no, no, no I'm sorry. It's our fault. It's our fault. We'll, you know, we'll try to figure out why the system went down. Uh, but obviously the fact that you can't get the bags is a problem. So I had to wait another 20, 25 minutes. And then somehow I must have talked or aggravated something. And then the next day I did martial arts. And for the last week, um, I've just had very, very bad back problems. I really have no idea why. This is, it's stupid. I mean, my worst injuries these days come from martial arts, not from lifting heavy things, which is a good sign you're getting old, I guess. But, I wanted to take some time today to talk about the developments that we've seen in the world over the last six months or so. And I predicted, or I provided some predictions for where things will go in episode 100, the, uh, the Eurasian century. And I predicted that the coming, the next hundred years or so, will be the hundred years of Eurasia. And I want to expand a bit further on that theme and talk about the contrast in systems that we see between the systems of the collective West, this so-called rules-based international order, which is not rules-based, not international, and not orderly. I mean, it's like grape nuts. They're not grapes or nuts, right? So what we're looking at is a very dynamic and fluid situation. And when I saw some of the comments that the Neo-Tsar had made about what the world will look like after this period of very high volatility and transition, I was reminded very strongly of a post that I wrote many years ago. And when I say many years ago, I mean, keep in mind, I have been writing since January 1st, 2013. So this was a post that I wrote called Globocop, and it is, I think, one of my better posts on the subject of geopolitics and philosophy. It dates back to October 12, 2014. 
And in it, I basically talked about the unipolar world order, which the United States has come to symbolize and is of which it is the leader. And I talked about using Halo references, why this was a bad idea. The recent comments by the Neo Tsar and by President Xi, Xi, Xi Jinping, I always get confused about how to pronounce his name because I listen to too much Alexander Mercurius, and he pronounces it President Xi. Uh, President Xi, uh, no, it's Xi Jinping, as far as I'm aware, in Chinese, it's Xi Jinping. So, anyway, President Xi of China talked about the evolution of a world order that is fairer, that is more respectful of sovereign states, and that is just less aggressive, militaristic, and stupid. And that really reflected and mirrored comments that we've seen coming from a number of other world leaders in the global south. When we look at what President Erdogan of Turkey has said, or what uh, Sisi, I think, uh, not, not not Sisi. What's what's the guy's name in Iran? I forget. I forget the 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 leader of Iran's name. Completely forgotten. Uh, inevitably, when I need it. But if we look at what some of these international leaders are saying, they're all saying more or less the same thing, in the same tone, which is that we're really tired of. American interventionism and interference. We're really tired of this globalist project. And we're sick and tired of being told what to do and how to live. We're sick and tired of being told that our values are not international values. Well, that's exactly what the Neotar has said. And he's offered several, on several different occasions, a vision of the future that I think is very compelling and is worth exploring. And if you look at what he said at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, uh, Petersburg Ekonomiczny Międzynarodny Forum, what he said there <clears throat> laid out his vision of the future. And a lot of Westerners misinterpreted his comments completely because they always do. They always, every Westerner, every Western journalist, every Western politician, uh, academic, pretty much without exception, there are some honorable ones, but not many, uh, thinks that Putin is calling for a return to the Soviet Union. Piers Morgan, for instance, who is nobody's definition of an academic or a wise man, um, was on his high horse, as usual, and he had Ann Coulter and a couple of other no-name people on his show, and he tried to bully and badger Ann Coulter into uh, some very nonsensical positions. And she wasn't having any of it. I mean, to her great credit, Ann Coulter does have her head screwed on right about these things. She said that America has no interest in Ukraine, and Ukraine has historically been part of the Russian world, the Russian sphere of influence, the Russian empire, and that America has no strong interests in guaranteeing Ukraine's security or freedom or sovereignty or any of these other things. And she's absolutely correct. Now, Piers Morgan, being a dumbass, tried to talk over her and say, so you want the Soviet Union back? This is an amazingly stupid take on what the neo-Tsar has said. 
and it is completely ignorant of his past statements on the subject. Far too many people take what Putin has said about the Soviet Union completely out of context. It is true that Putin has stated the fall of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. He's correct from a Russian perspective. Most people don't bother to look beyond that and say, what else did he think about the Soviet Union at the time? Putin is also on record as saying that the Soviet Union cost Russia an enormous amount of wealth and power and its fall removed from Russia tens of millions of its own people. The Russian people were broken apart and they've never found their way back to each other ever since then. And again, he is absolutely 100% correct. Because if you look at where Russian speakers are located, there are about 10 million of them living in the Donbass. There are hundreds of thousands of them living in the Baltic states. There are hundreds of thousands more, millions more perhaps, scattered all over the Ukstan republics and Azerbaijan and Moldova and Armenia and all of these former Soviet states which broke apart and which Russia let go without any conflict, basically granted independence and said, go forth and prosper. Didn't have a choice. Economically speaking, it should never be forgotten, and Putin is absolutely correct to point this out. The system of the Soviet Union was extremely unwieldy and extremely unproductive. And Russia sacrificed much of its own economic power and output to maintain these colonies. It was a classic case of imperial overstretch. And when the Soviet Union fell, the result was the impoverishment and the destruction of the Russian economy. Now, being a Russian himself, Putin's priority is to rebuild the Russian world, the Russian nation, and that means rebuilding the Russian people. It is from this perspective that he says the fall of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. That's why he said it, because he wants to recount how badly the Soviet Union ruined Russia. And he said it on numerous occasions. He stated blatantly and bluntly, you can go look up his speeches, he says it in Russian and you can find the subtitles. I mean, it used to be on Russia Insight and uh, that channel is now on Rumble and Odyssey. If you go to Russia Insight and you look up what he has to say about what Lenin did to, the so uh, to Russia and what the Bolsheviks did to Russia, he's not complimentary. That's the part that so many people fail to understand. They all seem to think, oh, he's, he's out to rebuild the Soviet Union. No, he's not. No, he bloody well isn't. So it is clear that Russia has learned the lessons of empire. It is not at all clear that the United States has learned any of the lessons of empire. And this brings to mind, in light of Putin's recent comments about a fair world order, in which individual nation states with differing points of view and differing ideologies compete with each other to find a mutual balance and a mutual respect, it is from this perspective that I look back on what I wrote nearly eight years ago, and it is remarkable how true those statements were back then, 
relative to today. So in, the, in this article, I talk about how I basically use Halo lore, and I talk about the Forerunner Empire, the Forerunner Ecumene, as it were. Now, the Forerunners in Halo, for those of you who aren't Halo nuts, this won't mean a damn thing to you, so I'll try to keep it brief. But the Forerunners are this amazingly powerful, extremely technologically advanced species that has reached the absolute pinnacle of what is scientifically and technologically possible. They rule over the entire galaxy, and humanity is one of their uh, subjects in this great and grand experiment. In the Halo universe, uh, somehow prehistoric humans from 100 and, you know, 110,000 years ago were a spacefaring race that had technologies and capabilities that matched the Forerunners and were uh, they had their own interstellar empire, and they were competing with the Forerunners. They were rivals of the Forerunners. Now, the Forerunners had this uh, religious belief, basically, in the mantle. The mantle of responsibility, which says that the Forerunners, in theory, are guardians of life across the entire galaxy. And that they are the stewards and caretakers of sentient life, and that it is their responsibility to care for that life and see that it thrives. Well, the Forerunners interpret this to mean that any, that the, only the Forerunners alone can rule over the galaxy, that their stewardship must be unquestioned and uncompromising, and that they alone know best what should be done for all of the various races in the galaxy. So whether you're talking about the Grunts or the Brutes or the Elites or the... Uh, the, what's it called? The damn it! The 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 Sanshayum, the, um, the Hyrocks. The, ah, I can't believe I've forgotten what they're called. But the Sanshayum, the the race, and I mean I know the races and all that, but the the, the various uh, factions of the Covenant. I mean, the the Forerunners are supposed to be the arbiters and the masters of their fate, and they're supposed to determine how these races will evolve and what they will do and, and how they will, you know, occupy their particular parts of the galaxy. And it's all supposed to be overseen by these benevolent overlords who will take care of everything and everyone. Now that sounds an awful lot like globalism, does it not? That sounds very much like the vision of the world espoused by the globalists. I mean, once you peel back all the fuzzy nonsense that they talk about, where we will all be one world united with a shared common purpose and there will be an end to strife and want and need and whatever. Ultimately, it comes down to a thin layer of very, very elite people ruling over the rest of us, telling us how to live our lives. That's really what globalism is. Whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we like it or not, that's what it comes down to. In that article, Globocop, that I wrote, I pointed out that the United States has fallen into the very same trap that the Forerunners, this fictional race, fell into in the Halo universe. They used their military power to suppress and destroy any race that challenged them, and they bred sloth and dependence into their captive races, so to the point where these races really had no idea how to fend for themselves. They had no idea how to fight back against an external enemy that was too strong for the Forerunners. So when the Flood came and wiped out all life in the galaxy, consumed it, and became this undifferentiated mass, this, this terrible 
enemy, the forerunners, couldn't fight against it because they were too weakened from suppressing internal rebellions and internal problems, particularly with prehistoric humans. Now, this is an uncannily accurate picture of exactly what we see today with respect to the United States. There is no question that the USA is in late-stage imperial decline. It has weakened itself thoroughly over the last 20 years with pointless forever wars that have drained its energy, its money, its military strength, and its ability to face up to its own internal problems. It no longer has a manufacturing base or capacity worth speaking of. I mean, it is the second largest manufacturer in the world. That is true. But when you look at the amount of, let's say, steel that the United States produces, and Andrei Martyanov has made this point repeatedly, and I think he's right. When you look at the amount of physical stuff that the United States produces, its production capacity is dwarfed by China. If you look at steel or titanium or rare earth metals or plastics, it's nowhere even close to what China produces because these are the, the raw materials and the raw inputs that go into making everything else. I'll give you another simple example. The United States is all big on green technology, green energy, as is most of the collective West. I mean, it's gone completely delusional about the, the idea of green energy, about solar panels and wind turbines being the answer to future energy needs. Well, do they not understand or realize that the majority of the world's solar panels and wind turbines are manufactured in China? They have never, nobody who's advocating for these policies has stopped and thought for a moment as to what the supply chain and the value chain of these green instruments really is. They don't understand where these things come from because they don't have any understanding of manufacturing operations and supply chains. They just don't get it. Most of the people who talk about these things, not all of them, most of them, are completely unqualified in these matters. They've never really run a real business. They have no understanding of the real economy, the productive economy. They simply see a false equivalence between carbon dioxide emissions and global temperatures, and they think, well, green energy is going to solve that problem. No, it's not. It's just not. Firstly, they've got the problem wrong. I mean, they've got the the cause and effect completely wrong. It's actually backwards, as we found out through looking at the actual data. And secondly, they, their understanding of the problem is so poor that they fail on multiple levels to understand how their solution will not work at all. So we're looking in, the, in terms of the West at an economy that's completely hollowed out. And the remarkable thing is that in the Cold War, the United States won the Cold War because its economic power was great enough to overwhelm on its own the economic power of the entire Warsaw Pact. CIA analysts back in the 1980s, and I've talked about this in previous podcasts, looked at the economy of Russia in the 1980s itself, and they concluded that the economy of Russia was only about the size of California's back then. And they looked at the size of the Warsaw Pact economies, they looked at how much those countries produced collectively, 
And they realized that those economies collectively only produced, actually produced less than the whole of the United States alone. So it was the United States in its manufacturing base, its technological base, its innovation base, its, man, its, its skills in management and its managerial genius, its organizational genius, that Reagan unlocked in the 1980s. And that defeated the Soviet Union. It brought the Soviet Union to its knees and the economic power of the West was such that the Soviet Union couldn't match it. And yet in 30 short years, here we are, and we see the roles completely reversed. We look at Russia and China and India and Brazil and Argentina, which is actually kind of a basket case. I mean, their interest rates are now at 60% because inflation is running at 60%. And we look at Turkey, again, another economic basket case. Inflation there is running at 80%. We look at Iran, inflation running at 50% or more, actually. And we see a number of countries that have serious structural problems, very serious structural problems. But collectively, their economic power completely overwhelms the collective West. It really does. No one who looks at Russia today should be under any illusions as to how strong their economy is. That is not a $1.7 trillion economy. That is an economy capable of out-manufacturing and out-producing most of Western Europe combined because of the sheer power of its industrial base. No one should be under any illusions about that. If you measure it on a purchasing power parity level and you look at Germany versus Russia, the two economies on a PPP level are equivalent in terms of GDP. And actually, if you look at how much stuff the Russians actually produce on their own, without any need for raw materials from other countries, the size of Russia's economy isn't just as big as Germany's, it's multiples of Germany's. That gives you some idea of just how badly we've underestimated Russia, all of us, myself included. I too have espoused the view in the past that Russia's economy is, oh, it's only the size of Italy's, or it's only the size of, you know, it's only $2 trillion. I was wrong. I mean, I was, I was very, 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 very wrong. It's much, much bigger than anybody realized. It's an economy so big and so powerful that it can produce for the same amount of money as a single U.S. nuclear-powered attack submarine. It can produce like eight or ten of their own attack submarines, which are better than the American submarine, have more armaments, more diverse armaments, and are more technologically advanced. That's how big the gap is between the West and Russia now. So when we look at what's happened with the current so-called international rules-based world order, which is nonsense, it's none of those things, we see profound structural deficiencies and problems that the West has been trying to paper over for decades. And it's failing now. It's really, it's openly failing. And what will come in its place is indeed a nations-based world order, an order in which different nations compete with each other and sort out their own problems bilaterally and multilaterally without having some Globocop swoop in to sort everything out and in the process create more instability and more problems. What this means in practice is essentially competition, market competition. Now, 
America is full of people that talk endlessly about free markets and free people. And that's good. I'm, I'm one of them. I mean, I have long argued for free markets, free competition, free people. But I am no longer a libertarian and haven't been for years. And I will be the first to admit there is a role for state-directed uh, channeling of productive enterprise. Russia demonstrates that very, very well. The Russian government, through state-owned or state-managed or state-majority-owned companies like Gazprom, um, Rosneft, Luke Oil, well, Luke Oil, I think, is private, uh, but these these huge, you know, near-monopolistic companies uh, has been very effective at keeping national control over its resources. It has not allowed Shell, BP, um, Exxon, and various others, uh, Valero, to come in and take over Russia's assets and resources and then siphon them off and sell them elsewhere. No, Russia has maintained full national control over its resource base. This is very much to the good. It means a slower path of economic development. That's true. It is a problem. It does mean a slower path of economic development because the movement of capital will be restricted and the efficiency of that capital will be impaired relative to a completely free market system. That's true. You can't get away from that. But it does mean that the Russian state and therefore the Russian people maintain control over their own resources. Now, this has to be done properly. You can't just, you can't, there are plenty of ways for it to go wrong when you put state-owned enterprises in control of everything important. If you don't believe me, look at India. I mean, the banking sector in India is a bloody disaster because of the state-run banks, which are just appallingly badly run. But they, they have to be. I mean, they, they take on all of the, like, the, all, they, they basically have no right of refusal for, uh, for, for customers. They, they have to take on the worst creditors and the worst loans. And the, the degree of non-performing loans on the balance sheets of Indian banks is astonishing. If you want another good example of a country where state-owned enterprises have completely broken down, more or less, Ukraine. Great example. Ukraine was a country that had everything at its disposal. It had everything. It should have been the richest country in Europe by now. It's the poorest. Why? Because of corruption, greed, nepotism, cronyism, and just an utterly disastrous kleptocratic approach to governance, where state-owned enterprises were pillaged and looted by oligarchs, and those oligarchs have taken the natural riches of Ukraine raped the country and distributed these riches elsewhere. That is going to change over time as nations turn inward and refuse to allow those riches to go out again. We're going to see more and more competition. Now, the very same people who espouse market competition in the United States are also the same people who say that the American capitalist ideology is the one that everybody should adopt. Why? What's wrong with competition in ideological terms as well? Why is that a bad thing? If you look at the market for souls, and this is kind of taking a bit of a left turn, but think about it. If you look in the United States or at any other big Western country, but really primarily in the United States, because if you look at most Western countries, the, the Christian church has died in those countries. 
the, the Christian church came under tremendous assault in the early 1900s from, among other things, the Tübingen School um, in Germany, which came up with this idea of critical analysis and literary, literary uh, analysis and textual criticism, literary criticism, redacted criticism, source criticism, and so on, of the Bible. And at the time, argued that much of what the Bible said was simply unsupportable based on historical evidence. That created a crisis in the church from which the European church has never recovered. That is part of the reason why Europe has turned decisively away from the Christian faith. It is also a big part of the reason why Europe is collapsing today. But, you know, the, the two go hand in hand. If you look at America, however, and you go to any American town, you can see on in various parts of the country, all of these different churches springing up and providing a marketplace for souls. And you can see that the Lutherans offer one path to salvation, the Baptists another, and the Episcopalians another, and the Pentecostals another, and the Anabaptists another, and the Anglicans another. I mean, look, most of these churches, from a biblical perspective, most of these churches are completely hopeless. They're completely wrong. The Catholic Church is hopelessly wrong on a whole range of issues. I'm going to offend Catholics mortally by saying that, but that's the truth. I mean, you look at what Catholic tradition teaches, and you look at what the Bible says, like, dude, the, the, you can't reconcile them. Uh, you look at what the Orthodox guys say, and you look at what the Bible says. I would personally, you know, this is my personal opinion, I would say the Orthodox guys are closer to what the Bible says than the Catholics, but, you know, that's, that's a whole other debate. But there's a marketplace for ideas, for souls, and for the way that people want to receive salvation. Now, as far as I'm concerned, none of that is necessary. I just need the book and the man. And that's how I interpret it. But you can, you can compete for people's attention. You can compete for ideas. And it doesn't always end well. I mean, you end up with these mega churches with 30,000 people in a rock star, in a, in an anthem sized stadium, and you got some, you know, jerkwad on the stage playing guitar like excuse me please show me where in the bible it says you can do this um the sermon on the mount is i mean back then they didn't have electrical amplification so you can't really take that as an analog for for, for what you're doing but anyway um that's that i'm being facetious here obviously but the point is that you have real competition so what exactly is wrong with competition between world orders? This is a good thing. For 30 years, we have had a unipolar world order, which says that everyone must obey the same set of rules. Remember when the United States marched into Iraq and overthrew the government uh, of Saddam Hussein? Saddam Hussein was not a good guy. Nobody's saying he was a good guy. He was a brutal and terrible dictator. Yada, yada, okay, fine, whatever. He was also, by the way a Ba'athist Sunni in the midst of a Shia um, population. And he was secular. And he was one of the very few leaders in the region willing and able to protect Iraqi Christians. The Iraqi Christian community today has been basically wiped out. And you know who did it? ISIS. And you know where ISIS comes from? Al-Qaeda. And you know what Al-Qaeda believes in? Sunni Wahhabist nutbag ideology, which Saddam Hussein was trying desperately to keep in check. What did the United States do? It came in, overthrew him, deposed him, killed him and his two sons, 
and put, tried to put in place a secular democratic government representative, etc., etc. All the good things, you know, uh, capitalist and free market oriented and kumbaya and can't we all be friends? Except that's not how it turned out. Because that's not how the nature and traditions of that part of the world work. You can't impose capitalism and free market ideology on a part of the world that has had, that has been marinated in 1600 years, uh, 1400 years actually. Um, well, okay, we're getting, we'd have, we'd have to unpack the whole debate about when Islam started and whether it was, whatever, fine. Let's say 1300 years, because that's realistically how long it is, of essentially, um, what's it called? Um, not, uh, was it, uh, the, the empire that followed Mu'awiyah, uh, the Abbasids, that's it, it's the, uh, not the Umayyads, the Abbasid Caliphate. The Abbasids were the ones who actually kind of crafted Islam into what it is today, and the, the nutbaggery and the intolerance and the lunacy and the just complete anti-scriptural nonsense that you see in Islam today, that comes from the Abbasid period. So you've had this religion festering, you know, this, this political ideology festering out there in the sands of, of, of Iraq, uh, for all of this time. And you look at the, the Shia way of doing things. It's not necessarily very much better. And in some ways is actually considerably worse. You're going to come in and impose upon that an ideology, which is only about four or five hundred years old of free markets, free inquiry, free, movements of people's democracy and and representative voting against something that's much, much, much older, that's almost three times older and much stronger in the minds and hearts of the people. It's not going to work. The only way to do it is to impose it by force, which the United States tried and failed repeatedly. Now, let's say the U.S. disappears and all of that nonsense that it tried to promote in that region, which is nonsense for that region, goes away. What happens then? Well, you've got Iran, which is the regional power. It's a Shia, it's a Shia uh, theocracy. Okay, fine. Not good, not great. Iran has some serious structural problems of its own. It's got a plummeting birth rate. It's going to collapse under the weight of its crumbling population pyramid and infrastructure and inflation and other things unless it changes. And eventually it will change. You have Turkey, which is an Islamist power, but has a fundamentally different view of Islam than the Shia do. It's uh, more of a more of a Sunni type. Um, it's a very different way of looking at at, at Islamic uh, literature and texts. You have China managing global trade flows through essentially a new Silk Road, managing trade through. Central Asia, into Russia, into Europe, out through the Middle East and into Africa. You have all of these competing interests. You have India down south, the only the only true Hindu power in the world. I mean, there are other Hindu nations as well. There's a Hindu island, Bali, in Indonesia. And there's very little by way of real Hinduism anywhere else. I mean, India is it in terms of Hinduism, right? So... They, their interests have to be balanced. Their interests have to be managed. Instead of having the United States try to come in and impose a blanket solution on everyone, 
What's going to happen next? What's going to happen is that all of these powers will have to sit down and discuss and negotiate. And yes, there will be you know, times when they come to blows. I mean, India and China, for uh, all that they have kind of in common, are also substantial economic competitors. There are major border clashes that crop up every now and then. There was a big one a few years ago, which resulted in the deaths of uh, dozens of soldiers between India and China. They, they are looking for the same resources, the same territory. They want the same things. And they are going to disagree. And they're going to disagree violently. They're, they're going to regard each other as superpower competitors or regional power competitors. Then you have Russia up north, the world's breadbasket, the world's resource uh, home, the, 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 world, the world's resource base, one of the largest producers of oil, gas, lumber, gold, uranium, rare earth metals, copper, silver, you name it. I mean, it'll come from Russia. Russia has enough to feed all of Eurasia, pretty much all by its lonesome, and it can work with its Eurasian partners to manage that relationship. Russia has to manage the needs of its CSTO partners in the form of the Ukstan countries, you know, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, um, and Azerbaijan, uh, Armenia. I mean, Azerbaijan and Armenia are two competing powers in the same bloc. They have serious problems with each other. They fought the Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, Kar- Nagorno the exact wording is difficult. I mean, it's, it's such an obscure conflict, you would think, but it's actually a major flashpoint between these two countries. And Armenia lost decisively the last time they fought, which was a couple of years ago. Russia came in and brokered the peace deal and said, look, guys, we're both CS- you're both CSTO members. For God's sake, let's sit down and work this out. They're dealing with completely different forms of government in Armenia and Azerbaijan. Putin is central to the relationship between both of the leaders. We see competition for ideas. We see competition for resources. But much of it can be worked out peacefully, as opposed to having this hyperpower come in and just impose a blanket solution by force, which isn't going to work because it doesn't uh, adhere to the realities on the ground. What's going to happen with Africa? Well, Africa is going to be Africa. I mean, there's no saving that continent. But once you get the United States out of the way, the various African leaders can deal with each other one-to-one without having to worry about what the Americans think. They can solve their problems on their own. Or they won't. I mean, it's being Africa, they won't solve their problems. I mean, that's just what Africa's like, right? Latin America, they don't have to deal with this these, these constant power games being played where somebody comes along that the Americans don't like, they try to depose him and install their own puppet leader, but that puppet is deeply unpopular with the people, so he turns into a tyrant, lords over his people, and then he becomes so unpopular that the United States has to depose him and put in some... And it's like, it's a never-ending story. It's a, it's a, an endless complex of stupidity and intrigue that inevitably leaves countries more unstable than before the Americans got there. Now, that's not to say that other countries won't engage in these great power games. I mean, Russia's done it. Russia continues to do it. China's done it. China continues to do it. But it won't be on anything like the same scale. There is something unique about 
the British and then the American way of doing things in terms of dividing and conquering that has led to instability and uh, dissipation and extreme tension no matter where it's been done. It's never worked, really. It's never truly worked successfully. And it's always led to imperial overstretch and decline. The British Empire, as I've stated on numerous occasions in the past, was an astonishing achievement. I am a child of a former imperial colony. Unlike, let's say, my parents or previous generations, I bear no ill will towards the British. I really don't. I am very grateful to the Brits for what they brought to these countries. I bear them no resentment or bad feeling. I'm just really shocked that they haven't learned the lessons that they were taught from those experiences. Because the British achieved something astonishing with the British Raj. I mean, when they were ruling over India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Burma, the British Raj, all the way down to Singapore, they ruled this enormous stretch of land with barely a hundred thousand civil servants and troops. And that's like three, four hundred million people. How the hell did they manage to do that? They managed it. The answer is they managed it through local administrators, a local sort of um, elite class that they themselves cultivated. And they did it using divide and conquer politics. And yet, in the process, they bankrupted their own country. If you look at the actual costs of the British Empire, it was a massive net drain upon them and their people and their economy. And the result was that after World War I, the net drain became so great that when combined with the debts accumulated through the war, they could no longer sustain it and the whole thing collapsed. The same is coming true of America today. Its overseas empire is so great and so expensive that it is bankrupting the country. That, when you combine it with the extreme financialization of the United States, which is to say the substitution of financial gains for productive, um, for actual production, let's put it that way, then you see a hollowed out country that is essentially dependent on its colonies or its trading partners, its vassals, really, to supply it with the things it needs in order to stay running. What you're seeing with the United States is essentially a country where you make money from money. You don't make money from producing things. I mean, that's a gross exaggeration and a gross misrepresentation. I'll be the first to admit that. But what you see in the U.S. today is a country that prides itself on financing things, not on building things. And the cost of building things is therefore prohibitively expensive. If you look at the cost of one Gerald R. Ford class supercarrier, $13 billion, and you look at the recent, just actually as of uh, Sunday, new naval doctrine, released by Russia. President Putin talked about it at his Navy Day address. Uh, uh, it was Dien Moskova Flota Rasiskoi Federatsi. 
uh, day of the you know sea float sea flotilla of the Russian Federation. What did he say? He said that the new doctrine of the Russian Navy must be to uh, project power so that the entire coast of the Russian Federation can be protected and that its vital interests can be looked after. And that for that reason, we need a true blue water Navy. Wow. I mean, this is like, holy crap, really? Andrei Martyanov explored this at some, uh, some length uh, in, I think, a video that he uploaded yesterday, I'm going to say. And he talks about how Russia is now likely to build new carriers. Now, when he talks about carriers, he's not talking about these whacking great Gerald R. Ford class $13 billion carriers. He's talking about much smaller, like half the size, half the displacement carriers that may carry um, short takeoff and landing jets. And I, I really hope for their sake that the Russians don't go fall into the trap of building vertical landing and takeoff jets like the Harrier or the Yak-141 or, God help us, the F-35. Because if they do, that will be a disaster for them. I mean, there are so many things wrong with these vertical takeoff and landing jets. It's not even funny. But the point is that the Russians are going to invest in building these carriers that are much more cost effective, much cheaper to run, much easier to maintain than these whacking great Gerald Ford class behemoths. Every single one of which can be taken out using hypersonic missiles which the Russians and the Chinese have and the Americans don't. The Russians and the Chinese, and especially the Russians actually, the Russians have hypersonic cruise missiles, not hypersonic glide vehicles, hypersonic cruise missiles. And that's a whole different story. A hypersonic glide vehicle is, it, it, it's essentially old technology. I mean, it dates back like 50 years, but a hypersonic scramjet or ramjet powered cruise missile, that's a whole different story. And that kind of missile is what the Zircon is, 3M22 Zircon, the Zircon. The Zircon missile that the Russians possess is a naval-based or naval-mounted missile that they are now adapting to submarine use, which will be fitted into their Yasin-class and Oscar-class attack and nuclear submarines, um, like uh, uh, Boomer submarines. And those missiles are capable of wiping out an aircraft carrier. Fired from a submarine, you can't see it coming, you can't fight against it. Uh, because of the plasma shockwave that, that precedes the, the missile itself, you can't detect it with standard radar. You have no way to shoot it down because it's traveling at basically Mach 9 or 10. And it will kill a carrier with a single hit. I mean, th th those $13 billion worth of carriers, they've just become completely cost ineffective. Whereas if you're looking at a carrier that costs, quote-unquote, only $2 billion and isn't nuclear powers conventionally powered and carries with it a relatively cheap complement of fighters, well, that is capable of much, much the same level of power projection that the Russian Federation needs. It doesn't need to project power across the entirety of the Pacific or across the entirety of the Atlantic. It just needs to project power far enough to deter aggressors from landing troops on Russian soil. That's it. That's competition. That's real cost effectiveness. And it's something that we haven't seen in a very long time. So judging by the instability of like current events, I mean, I'm speaking the day that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi arrived in Taiwan 
and really, really pissed off the Chinese. I mean, to the point where the Chinese are now basically saying, okay, that's it. The United States can't be trusted anymore. We are going to proceed with our plans no matter what. We're now watching the world break apart into these distinct spheres of influence. And the Chinese, the Indians, the Russians, the Eurasians, they're all going their own way. It's a good thing in the long run because as unstable as things are right now, the reason they're unstable is because the United States is a failing imperial power. And we're seeing the death throes of that empire right now. What comes after it will not be no world order, which is the title of this post. It comes from a very, very good Gamma Ray album from actually about 20 years ago. Uh, it's a great album, uh, some absolutely fantastic songs. The title track is amazing. Heart of the Unicorn, Solid, which is a phenomenal song. Uh, Eagle, um, yeah, a bunch of others. I mean, it's, it's a great album. I, I really do like it a lot. Um, Follow Me, uh, great songs. But go check it out if you're a metal fan. It's, it's an absolute classic. Anyway, the point is that it's not going to be no world order. There will be a new world order coming up. And it will be a fairer world order in the sense that it's not going to be one hyperpower trying to dictate to everybody what happens. It's not going to be two superpowers trying to dictate or trying to convince people to follow this path or that path. It will be Russia, autarkic, self-sufficient in almost everything it needs, willing to do trade with other people in the world, but absolutely committed to defending its own borders. It will be Europe, broken and isolated, because they've gutted their own economies and they've destroyed themselves. It's essentially going to become a, a tourist backwater, really, because their costs of energy are going to go through the bloody roof. And they've cut themselves off from the very people that can supply them with cheap energy that they need to keep their factories running and their people employed and their lights on. It, it, it astonishes me. The European leaders don't understand what they've done. Putin has said it outright in very plain terms. The relationship is broken and it will never go back to what it was. The Russians will never trust Europe again to be good customers. So they will divert their oil and gas and their coal to the east, they will use it for their own people. They will use their gas to develop their own economy and bring gas to central heating and uh, central um, central like uh, gas provision for some of the most far flung of their peoples. And they will see those people develop economically in the process. It may come as some surprise to you, but not every house in Russia is wired up for central heating and uh, very, you know, particularly in the very small outlying regions of Siberia and some of those settlements and, and cities, it's life is very hard, actually. It really is genuinely very hard life to be out there. That's going to change because Russia is going to turn its mineral wealth inward and then provision some of that wealth outward to Eurasia. But Europe is going to be left freezing and starving because of the decisions of its leaders, the incredibly stupid and short-term decisions. America is going to break apart. Canada and America are going to break apart into you know, probably three or four different countries, depending on how it works out. Hopefully, they will be less retarded individually and collectively than the U.S. has been. I hope. Latin America is going to work with the Russians and the Chinese to develop their own economies. 
we're going to see a flourishing of international trade and development. And all of it is going to come from competition, creative, healthy tension between different ways of looking at the world. The Indians have their way. The Chinese have their way. The Russians have their way. They're all based and rooted in different philosophies. The Chinese have Confucianism and a certain kind of virtuous paganism that they subscribe to. I would not want to live under Chinese rule. I do not respect the Chinese Communist Party. I do not like them. I do not like Chinese culture beyond a certain point. I mean, I respect it, but I don't like it. I have plenty of experience dealing with the Chinese. Again, I respect them, but I know that they're the biggest racists in the world. I wouldn't want to live under it, but the Chinese do, and that's up to them. And if they want to export that and other people are willing to accept it, hey, that's up to them. India has its way of doing things. India has a certain pagan approach to doing its style of life. And they are actually, in all honesty, the Indians are probably going to be content to keeping it that way, you know, for themselves. Because India is the only Hindu place to be. It's the only Hindu country really of any significance anywhere in the world. Africa is actually going to develop very rapidly because it's, that's where Christianity is spreading the fastest, believe it or not. Latin America, it's going to go its own way and it's going to devolve into squabbling fiefdoms at some point.